You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everybody, big old happy new year to all of you. Hope your 2018 is off to a great start. Hope you set some great resolutions and you are keeping them. Uh, in fact, I wrote a blog last week about how to set and keep New Year's resolutions. It published on January 1st. Go to theproducersperspective.com and check them out. Now on with the podcast. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective Podcast and the first episode of this brand spanking new year. Thanks so much for joining us today. And we have yet another Tony Award winner with us today. Please welcome director Pam McKinnon to the podcast. Welcome, Pam. Yay. Happy New Year. So Pam won that Tony for Outstanding Direction of the Revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, on Broadway, she has also directed Clyborne Park, China Doll, Amelie, amongst others, and this season's The Parisian Woman, starring Uma Thurman, and a ton of Regional credits, way too many to name. So let's start. Where did you get bit by the theater bug? Um, I grew up in suburban Buffalo. Toronto as a little kid, a little bit older, suburban Buffalo. And in um, junior high school, the funding disappeared for our drama club. And there was a very energetic friend of mine, Willard Crosby, who uh, raised money, like went around to restaurants and like got the Methodist church across the street from the junior high to donate space. And all of a sudden we were putting on shows. And I got like roped into this community of what would we have been 12 year olds and so that was really the beginning of it and I you know we did a uh, an adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time and I was Aunt Beast wearing this fur coat backwards I mean it was just like you know there was a lot of stuff um and then and then continued acting in high school uh, you know, it was suburban Buffalo, and this was the day when there were really cheap flights between Buffalo and New York. And so I don't know what our parents were thinking, but they let teenagers come to New York City, and we'd pile into the Milford Plaza and go to TKTS and see what whatever we could. I have a vivid memory of one day seeing a, uh, a matinee of Porgy and Bess at Radio City. Um, I forget what my 8 o'clock show was, but I know there was one. And then Whoopi Goldberg had a special 11 p.m. on Saturday nights doing her one-woman show. And, you know, so crazy. So, you know, so I got bit. That's so funny. First of all, Willard Crosby. That's yeah, Willard name. Crosby. I mean, that is a producer in the making. If you're listening, Willard, I have a job for you. You can raise money for me anytime you want. Well, he has done. He has. He, he, he lives in New York. He's an IT guy. He's done a bit of producing. Um, no, he's still a very active, bright light in my life. We're going to have to get him on the podcast here. And I... I, too, stayed at the lullaby of Broadway yeah. when I used to come in. I didn't get on a plane, but my parents were crazy enough to allow me to take the Metro North train from New Haven, Connecticut, and then wander around, and I, too, yeah, would see a same matinee kind of thing, right? and an evening. Yeah. And when did... So you got roped in. You were 
acting in a wrinkle in time. When did directing start for you? I directed one thing in high school. I directed a short play by Thornton Wilder and Pullman Car Hiawatha. And then I went to college. I went to the University of Toronto. I acted a little bit more and then I stepped away from it. I stepped away from theater. Um, I was in the like debate society. I, uh, you know, I, I sort of like what age 18 had this notion of, well, now it's time to get serious and put away, you know, childish pursuits. So I got serious. I studied economics and political science at the University of Toronto and loved some professors, you know, loved being out and about in the world, you know, verging on adulthood, college experience. Then I went immediately into a PhD program for political science at UC San Diego. So age 21, pursuing a PhD in the other side of the country, like sight unseen. And partway through that, maybe a year and a half into that, I really recognized, I was actually doing some pre-dissertation research in Madrid, in Spain one summer, and could not get myself to the Union Archives. Like, just couldn't. Like, I just was not interested enough. And it really hit me like a thunderbolt, maybe age 23 that summer of, you know, I was a good student, so I could fulfill assignments, but getting, but, you know, writing a dissertation, pursuing a PhD, becoming an academic, which was following in my father's footsteps. It was sort of a company, you know, sort of a family business. My dad was an academic. I realized I'm not interested enough. And, oh, it's not about what you're doing in life. It's your relationship to it. So what is serious isn't the content, it's how it activates you. And I had to, this was in Madrid, this was like 4am musings. And the last time I felt like really passionate, self-starting in like a major, major way was doing theater. I'd only directed one thing. I knew I didn't want to be an actress. And I started to sort of say, you know what? I think my brain is a director brain. And the stories that I had been pursuing as a grad student were too big to be answered in a social science form. I was getting, you know, my stories were big. My questions were big. And so that is theater. And I, like literally that week, started to write some, this is like tiny bit ahead of email. I started to write some postcards to friends and family from Madrid. And they floated across the Atlantic. And that takes time. And in that time, I got myself to the Union Archives. So did some work. So like the fire had sort of gone down, but the notion remained. And then phone calls and postcards came back to me. And people were like, well, of course, you're going to be a director. Like, like we've been waiting for this. Of course, that all makes sense. And I went back to San Diego. I came clean with my advisors. And some of them were also, well, of course, of course. And theater is fantastic. I had one advisor who had uh, gotten his PhD at Yale. And so was like, I so miss going to the cabaret. I hope you do something. And I said, well, UC San Diego has an amazing theater program. You should come to the cabaret. You know, oh, 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 great. And they um, had this great transition year where I continued to be a teaching assistant for introductory ethics classes and comparative politics. And I signed up Cabaret Space and started working with actors and designers in the MFA program and undergrad program at UC San Diego. Took some improv classes over the summer, you know, just sort of worked at a cafe, assisted Des Mackinoff, assisted Anne Bogart, did some small shows of Russian futurist plays in parking lots, did a production of Miss Julie late night, you know, like just like still at a student card. So I was still attached to the campus, but not. And then I didn't feel ready to move to New York. I went to one of my hometowns. Toronto and did some stage management, you know, sort of reconnected with some college friends and then uh, crashed Des Mackinoff's auditions for the Who's Tommy. And I had assisted Des when I was in La Jolla and he very casually, when I was leaving San Diego, very kindly and casually as he was going through his Toronto Rolodex, because he's from Toronto, he said, you know, if if Tommy's a success on Broadway, we hope it is, it played La Jolla, in a couple years, it might very well
all have a Toronto sit down. And if you're still there, look me up. Well, my 24 year old brain was like, I have a great job in a couple years. And if I'm still there, I will seize it. And Tommy did do well on Broadway. Tommy did have a sit down in Toronto. And I found out where the auditions were and I showed up. And Des had completely forgotten, probably me, but certainly that, you know, kind job offer. And, but, I was there. And so I was an assistant on uh, Tommy in Toronto. And then the associate director, Lisa Portes, and I put up Tommy in Germany like a few weeks later. And with that under my belt, I felt, well, now I'll go to New York and direct Broadway musicals. And, uh, you know, 20 years later, I had my first musical on Broadway. But in between, you know, a lot of new plays, a lot of downtown stuff, a lot of regional stuff, a lot of off-Broadway, a lot of, you know, Edward Albee in my life. Like it went on from there. When you, you worked with Des, obviously, and Anne Bogart and these incredible directors any pearls of wisdom any pieces of advice that you still remember them they still remember well the and and, and the uh, the other the, the third director that i assisted once i was in new york was dan sullivan and so three very different directors which was kind of great for me as someone who never studied theater and what i guess the big pearl of wisdom was really sitting in those rehearsal halls was you have to be true to yourself like directing is a very personal conversational art form it's about you know activating other people who are maybe more specialists in different fields whether it's design whether it's acting um, whether it's playwriting and you just have to to be really true to your own energy, true to your moment to like pull that lever, give the hard note or celebrate the good thing. So that's, I guess, what I learned is, and you know, and especially from those three very different people that they've kind of found their core and they can walk into any room and be themselves. So it's not be the next Des McEnough, be the next Dan Sullivan, be the next Hal Prince, whatever. It's just be... Yeah, you. like, you know, and sort of figure out your relationship to a text and your relationship to people and try to like be, be, a, be a consistent person in whatever meeting or interaction, you know, you, you get involved with. That's what I kind of took away from those three people. So describe your rehearsal room process. You talk about being in those rooms, three very different rooms, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. What is your process like when you get the actors in a room? Do you prepare every bit of blocking beforehand? Are you that type of director? Are you, you know, some people, someone was talking, Chris Catelli was talking about Mm -hmm. Bart Scher's room where he felt so scared walking the first day because he didn't know what was going to happen. What's your process like? I, I certainly prepare, but I do not. I do not do the, like, the the intricate, intricate blocking thing. Unless, I mean, obviously, you know, a 13-person musical, yeah, you've got to figure out who's coming who's coming through the door when and, and where are they landing and stuff like that. So every show's a little different. But I do a lot of uh, plays with sofas and, you know, that are, are, are about, like, you know, sort of figuring out collectively mining deep, true intent, and the body will then follow. Like, you've got to sort of figure out what your clear action is, what you're, and, and you're using the language, and you're, you know, thinking on the line, and hopefully that translates into what your body needs to do, whether it makes sense to, you know, cross the living room, or whether it makes sense to sit down, or whether it makes sense to hit the person next to you, you know, so it comes out of the language. So I, you know, certainly in my rehearsal room, spend as, m- like, three or four days around the table and really trying to talk about both the big picture as well as the little picture. I mean, prior to that, I also really try to surround myself with amazing designers. And we do talk about the physical world and talk about like, is the, is the front door visible? Is there a step down? Is there, you know, where... Where's the best place for that ottoman? You know, what what are some downstage, you know, imperatives that will get some actors down there? 
you know, sometimes in a, in a living room set, I'm speaking, you know, about a subset of my work, but like a living room set, there's so much furniture and you can sort of like all of a sudden actors are like behind sofas and it's really hard to get them down. So what are the things that take them down? So we try to, you know, build a space that is dynamic. And certainly at times with designers, you know, talking through specific moments, like in, in, in a delicate balance, which I did twice, once at arena stage and once on Broadway, you know, talking about where, where that all important bar is that the daughter eventually has to defend with her life. And at one point with Santo Lacosto, who did a beautiful, beautiful set on Broadway, the bar was really far upstage. And I said, that is going to be, it's going to be a strange dynamic. And so let's pick this apart and like figure out, you know, and it's like building the ground plan for a really specific moment and then kind of tracking it through to see if other really specific moments, if it can still serve it. But then once I'm in rehearsal, hopefully we haven't like built something that is impossible, but then it's very much about getting once the actors are on their feet, kind of exploring it bit by bit. And I'm really, I don't set things until really, really late. And some stuff, I mean, I figure if it, if it's, if it gets repeated, then it's good. If the company starts repeating stuff, then it's for a reason. And if, you know, if the story's getting translated, you know, from that movement, then it's, it's kind of working. But, you know, so I'm very loath to like take out the piece of paper and say, okay, on that line, you're crossing. But eventually, yeah, on that line, you're crossing. When you're working on a new play, I assume you're, you like to get involved with the writers early on and digging into that play. And then when you get to that tape with the actors, how much do you encourage allow them to actually influence the writing on a new play as well if this is the first time these lines are ever spoken out loud do they do they participate in that process in your room really depends on the writer you know some some writers you know kind of hand me a play like if it's a first play kind of good to go with maybe a couple question marks like a couple beats or maybe one scene that is like I know this isn't there yet but I'm ready to share. And then other playwrights are, you know, well, this is a bit of a notion and a prayer and um, want some feedback and let's get in a room and maybe have a reading and like sort of see what sticks. So it really, really depends on the writer. And I'm very sensitive to that. And if a writer both, you know, encourages me to let the actors in, then I do. And if the writer's like, look, I don't need that. I don't need that kind of, you know, kind of free for all that I'm very sensitive to that. So it's kind of not my call, I feel. And speaking of feedback, what do you do during the preview period? Do you listen to audience? Do you try to get a sense of what they're saying at intermission? Do you hmm. just get a sense of applause and energy in the room? Do you block them all out and just focus on the story you want to tell? Tell me about. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's less about like eavesdropping about what they're saying, you know, in the the bathroom line or something like that. It's more about like you can feel, I think, in in a room which is a theater, whether whether that collective group is going on a ride, you know, are the heads facing forward is one thing, you know, so as a director quite often, especially in early previews, I sit pretty far back, both to get like, you know, I've been in tech. And so I've been sort of in, you know, in dealing with the actors. So generally, up to that point, I've been kind of in the first seven rows or so a lot, sending my assistants up to other places, but sitting back and so kind of watching the previews as well, this is a this is a pressure cooker moment. And if people are, you know, getting distracted and heads are moving or, you know, 
programs are getting dropped or it's Russell Russell and people are like, you know, digging into their purses, there's a problem. They're not paying attention in scene four. Okay, I'm going to take that information. You know, certainly it's not about do, do they leap to their feet, but it is about, yeah, you can feel, you can feel whether they're engaged, whether they're excited, you know, and, and obviously not all plays are leap to their feet, kind of, they're not constructed that way. So that for me is not a good indicator unless it is supposed to be a leap to your feet kind of play. And if they're not, well, then you need to engineer it. So yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's more about letting myself it's a big public moment, early previews. It's nervous making. It's you're sharing something that still needs work and you are working on it, but trying to be kind of relaxed enough to take in like the collective feeling, not so much the individual whisperings. Do you read reviews? I read them once and online. Any chat room? Do you check that I don't stuff do that. Yeah. I don't do that. I'm asking a lot of these questions like a survey where it's taking a poll and yeah, most yeah. people are staying away. Whereas actually many years ago, I think a lot of people did more than they really? do now. Yeah. Because it was kind of new and like, yeah. what's out there? What does this mean? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I just have no interest in that. It's, I think that's definitely a trend. So you've done a lot of new plays. You've done a lot of revivals. If you could only pick one to direct for the rest of your career, which one would you choose? Do you mean specific play or new no. plays versus revivals? New revise? plays or revivals. Which one do you enjoy? more. Probably New Place. And let's talk about Virginia Woolf for a second. Let's uh -huh. stay on the revival front, which was an incredible production of that play. Thank you. And, you know, most directors out there in the world get to do plays that have been written before more than new plays. It's only Broadway or big regional mm -hmm. theater. Like, that's new plays are a very small group of things. If you're a director in the middle of the country, you're doing revival of something, mm -hmm. right? There have been many, many great productions of Virginia Woolf before yours, right? How do you step into the rehearsal room knowing like, oh my God, I got this classic work. There have been these other incredible productions before. How do you forget about that and just focus on what you want to do? Do you feel I need to put a stamp on it? I need to do something unique? No, I didn't. At that point, I th that was, I think, probably my seventh or eighth or ninth play by Edward Albee. You know, I had a longstanding relationship, personal and professional with him. So that kind of helped. I did it first at Steppenwolf in Chicago. There was no intention of bringing it to New York. So it was a, you know, an important Chicago production with some, with like some heavy hitter, George and Martha, you know, Tracy Letts, Amy Morton, big Steppenwolf company members, people I'd admired. Amy is a director as well as an actor. Tracy is a writer as well as a, an actor. And we auditioned for our Nick and for our Honey. And Tracy and Amy were in the audition room. So that was great. And my Nick... Madison Dirks got his equity card on that show. I mean, it was it was a Chicago production. It was important in that Edward had never allowed one of his plays to be done at Steppenwolf, ever. And so I felt like I really engineered that. So that felt like important. Why? He, uh, for, for him, it was, a, you know, by, by the time we did Virginia Woolf, it was a very foggy memory as to why. He has a vague memory of some Steppenwolfian moment. You know, was it Gary Sinise? Was it John Malkovich? Was it, you know, someone kind of getting up into his face and saying, we want to show you what your plays are really about way back when. And Edward was like, thank you. There's no need for that. 
and I will take my plays away from you. But, you know, to his credit, you know, when it was like such a vague memory and I was going to direct, he was like, do it, do it. And he said, there can be no casting compromises, but do it. So we did it. And, you know, we, we, we definitely in early rehearsals, um, I think I remember actually Tracy saying, you know, we're dealing with this iconic American play. How do we treat this like a new play? How do like, you know, he felt like, in especially like I remember first day on the set that he went to the closet and there was that kind of limp sweater that a George should wear. He's like, Oh dear God, here we go. This is, this is uh, the mantle. But yeah, trying, like trying to keep it about like making intentions really deep, making, you know, sort of going moment to moment, putting on a play. I mean, it was great that we did it in Chicago. It was great that we then hopped it to arena stage and it ran there, you know, for a nice like eight week run or something like that. And then one year later brought it into New York with the company intact. Do you think it benefited from the fact that there was no expectation of it coming to Broadway? Absolutely. I mean, it let me have my cast. Right. Because if I, if I say, hey, Pam, let's do Virginia Woolf, we're going to engineer something that's going to quote unquote work on yeah, Broadway. Absolutely. Right? And it was only seven years after Bill and Kathleen, you know, did a wonderful revival of it. So there was no, like zero expectation. You know, there'd been a long gap of New York seeing Virginia Woolf and Bill and Kathleen did it. So it was not about Broadway. It was about my opportunity to do, and actually it started at Arena Stage. Molly Smith, the artistic director of Arena Stage, contacted me and said, Pam, we're going to do an Edward Albee something something and we want Virginia Woolf to be the cornerstone. Would you like to direct it. Yes, of course, I want to do the biggie. And um, we were talking about casting and I said, this is a little off casting, but I would love Amy Morton to be my Martha. And word got back to Martha Levy, the then artistic director of Steppenwolf. And she said, okay, here's the deal. You can have Amy Morton in DC if the play starts at Steppenwolf. And if it's not a co-production, because Steppenwolf doesn't do co-productions, but if it's the Steppenwolf production of. By the way, Edward Albee has never let us do a play of his, so... Balls in your court, McKinnon. So, you know, that was a series of weird phone calls, but it all came out. But you figured it out. You engineered that in a way, in the same work that I would do as a producer. Yeah, it felt, to pull it, felt, it felt very much like producing. I mean, it was producing, but like, no doubt it was producing. So my first call was to Molly. Would she be interested in this model? That it's a Steppenwolf Company production that will have a life in a, at arena stage, but she is actually not a co-producer. Is that at all copacetic? The other thing that Martha said is, if you get Amy... You would, would you be satisfied with Tracy as George? And I said, absolutely. Satisfied yeah. with Tracy. And then I had several, you know, phone calls with Edward and I could, I sort of read, and I'm sure you do this a lot as a producer. I sort of read the temperature on the other end of the phone because I was determined not to get a no. And I started to like mentioned Amy Morton as a wonderful actress. Who? Well, she was, she was the, she was the eldest sister in August Osage County. What? You know, okay. So that's not the day. <laughs> So then, you know, one week later, you try to, what is the entree into this conversation? Yeah. Yeah, we're all negotiators no matter what we do. Yeah, and you want a yes. What you're directing on Broadway versus directing in the regional world, pros, cons, when you came here to Broadway for the first time, was it like everything you cracked up, it was cracked up to be, or what was the I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, the, I mean, the production prior, my, my Broadway production prior to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was Claiborne Park. So also started off Broadway, 
Playwrights Horizons got sort of an inscrutable New York Times review. It was a positive review, but kind of a tangential essay about something. It was a very strange, I mean, it was not a ticket selling review. A A lot of people were very excited by that production. A lot of people came to see it. And a lot of people were sort of left like, that's a big cast of a new play with an inscrutable New York Times review. And then it did very well in London and was a hit on the West End, ultimately. And then it won the Pulitzer. And then producers got interested again. And we were back into like, let's see what this is. And is this commercially viable? And um, yeah, all of a sudden there was, you know, New York producer interest. So it, and and the the conceit was keep the company. Like that was part of the idea behind producing it on Broadway. So my first two Broadway experiences were very much not engineered at all for Broadway and came in in really sneaky ways, like a year and a half later, and but with the same company. So that was kind of golden. Like, I mean, how great is that? My subsequent Broadway experiences have been built for Broadway and have been so diverse. I mean, like a big bones, deliciously starry, you know, revival of A Delicate Balance, another Albie play, Um, new play by David Mamet with Al Pacino and Al and I, when Dave worked for years on that. Years on that in little black boxes around did, the country. I think you did a little reading in my black box yes. in my theater. Yes, but years. And, you know, a new musical that, you know, was four and a half years getting to Broadway. What was the biggest surprise for you when you got to Broadway for the first time? You're like, oh, oh, this is how that, okay, I got it. I mean, there, there, there is, you know, it, it, it is cutthroat that, that, you know, that, that stuff can close, you know, stuff that is fantastic doesn't necessarily find its audience. I mean, I've, I've, I mean, I've had some, some very bittersweet, you know, moments. I mean, I mean, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf closed early? We did not find our audience. Bible was so magnificent. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I mean, and you know, and a couple of years later, I did a wonderful, I think, and people loved it who saw it, revival of Heidi Chronicles. People didn't come. And the company is so amazing. And Lizzie Moss was, as Heidi was just so relevant, vulnerable, strong. So that's the shocker. How do you pick yourself up when something like that happens, whether it's a review that's not so great or whether it's a show that's closes and you're like, well, I don't get it. Yeah. How do you get yourself into the rehearsal room the next day on the next show? Yeah, well, you just put your hands up against your, the size of your head, and that and that is the gesture, right? It, and you get spun. But you know, but you know, I'm also very fortunate that that my calendar, my schedule, my career calendar is kind of booked, so people expect me in a couple months or sometimes the next day. Like I, I would, I went from a delicate balance. And there was, we closed a delicate balance my first day of tech of Heidi Chronicles across the street. So I almost had two shows Ooh, that's running. The I know, ever. but it was so close. It was so close. So I went on my dinner break of first day of tech of Heidi Chronicles to catch the final curtain call of a delicate balance. So that was cool. But yeah, so it, it you know, it is about. Yeah, like you try to lick your wounds and lick them privately. And, you know, you have, I have great friends and family. I have a great support system. But then someone, another room expects me, another producer, another group of actors expect me, you know, a day later, a month later. And, you know, it, it, I, mean, it, I mean, that's also an incredibly rarefied, fortunate position to be in and sort of a delicious adolescent, you know, I get to like screw around with this group and then, ah, oh, it didn't work out. Screw around with another group. And even if it does work out, it eventually closes too. Like there is something, you know, it, it, it all eventually winds up in the dumpster. So it's great. 
great when it, you know, completes its its run. It's great when it sort of exceeds expectation, but it is eventually going to disappear too. So you are one of those people with a jammed schedule. A, you're a very in-demand director. You're an A-list Broadway director, and you're also an A-list female director. And there just frankly aren't enough of them as there should be. Mm-hmm. How was it coming up for you as a female? Did you notice something more difficult and more challenging for you? And then how did you bust through that a bit? It's really hard to to know because my experience is my experience. So it's hard to like decide like what what the sociological context is based on my only my individual experience. There are so many great women directors out there right now. There are not that many working consistently on Broadway. I have to think there will be, but it is a it, it is a crazy statistic. You know, there are certainly more celebrated women working on Broadway, meaning getting awards, but the percentage actually hasn't shifted at all since they've been keeping records. You know, it is like 17% of the plays directed on Broadway are directed by women. That has been true since the early 80s. There is no change. It is not even, like it's 17%. Like it's not even, oh, it now it's 22. That's kind of shocking. At this point, I have directed, without being a director choreographer, because Stro has me beat, but I have directed more productions. I have one musical in the mix, but more productions than any other woman. And I only started directing on Broadway five and a half years ago. So why did that happen? So let's talk about what, because I look for patterns or things that we can do to apply to other people. There are lots of directors probably listening to this and hopefully lots of female directors. And I'm a big believer in, yes, it's easy for me to say to me, Ken, hire more female directors. Mm -hmm. And I, as Lynn Aaron schooled me on this very podcast years ago, make sure I think about women whenever I'm, I I just take a moment and think. Uh Diversity in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's important. But I also think that as individuals, we need to take some control and do something to try to advance whatever it is we're trying to advance. So what should female directors out there do to try to increase their odds at the same time? I mean, okay, first of all, not everyone wants to work on Broadway. You know, there there are, you know, some some plays that should not be put in an a thousand seat house or put through a commercial ringer. So there are, you know, there are certain, you know, there there are some aesthetics and stories that are not for the one thousand seat marketplace. And that's okay. In fact, that's fantastic. Like I am a Tony voter. I see a lot of Broadway and I try to go downtown. I try to, you know, I've also need, need that. I want to see stories told in different ways and different stories. But yeah, what, what, I mean, it, 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 Ultimately, I mean, it, it's it's a business like any other business, um, and and you make relationships. And you know, I, I mean, certainly my relationship with Edward Albee opened a lot of doors for me, and that was a lot of years. I mean, you know, I did small small regional theater play of his. He came to my rehearsal hall. He liked what he saw. We got to know each other a little bit. Eventually, he gave me a new play. Get at a regional theater. I mean, it was a a 17-year relationship before he died last year. So I had someone like that. I had someone who was both in his third chapter or third act of his career and being produced widely. I was very fortunate, very fortunate, unusually fortunate for a young director, man or woman, to have someone like The first time I worked in Chicago was on an Albee play because David Petrarca got a movie and an Albee play that he was going to direct all of a sudden needed a director. First time I worked at the Goodman. Very fortunate. So, you know, so, so those kinds of like writer-director relationships are hugely important. And it's not about like, this writer will take 
take me to Broadway. But it's this writer. We click for whatever reason. And let's continue what this relationship is. And let's see where we go. You know, so though, and, and women and men do that. You have your, you have your people. And sometimes those people sort of wind up, you know, taking you to interesting places and you take them to interesting places. I mean, I do think like the loyalty of collaboration and is important and growing up together. I feel like Bruce Norris and I have sort of grown up together, you know, artistically. We're friends for a very long time. When I first moved to New York, a very dear friend of mine was in a play, understudying in a play on Broadway that Bruce was acting in. I lived in Midtown. I got to know Bruce and he then became a writer. And all of a sudden, you know, I became more of a director, you know, that kind of thing. So those relationships are real in terms of also getting to know, obviously, Broadway producers. But it's, I mean, I was very fortunate in that I started working with Broadway producers because there was something that someone wanted to produce that I was attached to. And it came, they, those two things came from the outside. And then, and then I did a good job. Like I showed up and I was, I was authentic and true to myself and worked hard and had good conversations. And, you know, Jeffrey Richards is a loyal, he's in my corner. It's fantastic. Great time working with Tom Vertel and Richard Frankel. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, I'm glad to hear you say that you think about women and you think about diversity and it's, you know, and, and, and I also, I mean, I hope that people take chances too, but it's hard. I mean, it, you know, when, when you have some of your go-tos and I bet, you know, and, and definitely not, I bet, but in this neighborhood, a lot of the go-tos are men of a certain age. Absolutely. Get Jerry's axe if you want it to be this, you know, I mean, but like take a chance because there's some very good people out there. All right. My last question, my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and agrees to grant you one wish. What's the one thing about Broadway that frustrates you? Could get you angry, upset, would have you protesting, jumping up and down, banging on the table, that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant? It's a good question. I do, I wish that there were a way... I mean, ticket prices are getting higher and higher and higher. This sort of circles us back to the, my original ramble about how I got involved in theater. When I used to come to New York, you know, and line up at TKTS, I could pay $15 and see a Broadway show. And they weren't always the hits of the season. They weren't even, even for me, 15, 16, 17 years old, even like fantastic, not every one of them, but they were exciting and they were affordable. And I could save, I mean, 15 bucks was more than 15 bucks now, but I, I could do that. And so I, uh, yeah, I, I would pound on a table. The box office grosses are getting higher and higher and higher, but attendance is actually going down. And that's a dirty little secret. Yeah, it's not a very good economic model. No. Well, thank you for that answer. And thank you for joining us today. Fun, Ken. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Don't forget to go to theproducersperspective.com. Check out my blog about how to set and keep New Year's resolutions. It's there waiting for you. And so is the rest of the year. Go get them. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 